Well, it's delightful to be here today. We're so particularly glad that Shell and Loto are with us. Uh, today we are to discuss the what is the fourth of four Advent uh, lessons, and the first one was two weeks ago that we that we are using, and we talked about some of the things that have happened to get us to the Advent. Malone talked last week about a lot of things, <laughs> and people have been asking me what am I going to say about Malone, and all I'm going to say is, you were there, you saw him. <laughs> I don't think he was having any stomach trouble either. <clears throat> Today, to uh, go forward with the Christmas story, we're going to talk about the, the center point would be the Advent. Where do we go? with the Advent. And as I said to you last time, I'm just going to try to share with you some of the, of the ways that, that the Christmas story in my life is developing, and particularly in the past few years. I can't just leave the Christmas story as the baby in the manger. It's got to have a bigger context than that. And of course we all know that. The context is great. If we start looking at what we know about God and the context of, of, uh, of, of everything, we have to start with creation. My goodness, you can ask the first question, why is there anything at all that a God who is, has the omnipotent power to speak and out of the energy, his own personal energy, create a material universe? Which used to sound pretty ridiculous, but now with quantum physics, we we really can understand that thing between energy and material. <clears throat> if we do that and we blame the creation on God, then when we come to, to Advent, we start trying to look at a connection between them. What is God doing in this universe? It's God's universe. God's omnipotent. He can do what he wants to do. We believe as Christians that the significance of the Advent is that God, for his own plans and purposes, whatever they are, is showing the world who he is and what he's about. Christians believe that what Christmas is all about in the Advent is the coming of God into the world as a man. And if you just take that statement alone that is an amazing statement you mean to tell me that God who is not material and who lives in eternity where time doesn't bother him at all he's not measured anyway by time decided that it was important for him to become a man <clears throat> and of course <clears throat> we've had a pretty good history in of uh, people's ideas about God. And even in the day when Christ came, the, the Jewish, um, the, well, the Jewish culture, culture had a sense of who God was and that they were God's people. They had very much difficulty in recognizing this suffering Messiah as the one that should be. And the Greek world around them, they had plenty of gods. With people, we had no trouble as human beings inventing God in, in our own image. <clears throat> what we Christians are, are asked to believe 
It is that God created us in his image, the other way around. Excuse me. And for his purposes, he has decided to come to earth as a human being. Now, what is, what is God doing? Why is he doing it? C.S. Lewis, the former uh, agnostic atheist, said that the idea of Christ coming to us, God coming to us as a man, is, he called it, the true myth. If you don't believe it's true, you ought to have to dismiss it and put it back on a mythological basis. Here's the true myth, meaning that it's, it's substantiated then uh, by history. Uh, when we are trying to decide where we're going with all of this story, there is a, there is a number that we're going to do sometime over the Christmas uh, holiday. When we're going to do No Longer Evaded. Have a twenty. Here's 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 a little word right out of that. No longer a baby, no longer a child, no longer a lullaby. So sweet do we sing. Is that where it goes? But the child who was born there, once heard crying, has become omnipotent king. Whoa. That's the Christmas story. It's too easy, you know, it'd be too easy to have Christmas and reduce Christmas to Christmas trees and Santa Claus in the same way that we can we could reduce Easter to Easter eggs and bunnies. But the context is amazing that this child born at Christmas, who is he? Where did he come from? Uh, what is he? What is he all about? Now we're going to decide what we're going to believe. We're going to stick with the, I'm going to stick, what I will say, I think I'm going to stick with Scripture. I'm going to, I'm going to be uh, part of the, I'm going to follow the Reformation. Number one thing Martin Luther said, if it is not in Scripture, don't believe it. If it's a tradition that people have held, unless Scripture supports it. So I'm going to believe in Scripture and what's supported uh, by Scripture with the idea that we certainly need to be pretty darn careful what we believe. There's, there's a lot that can be believed. The world's full of variant beliefs. Why do we believe what we believe? If you stop and look at the Christmas story that God came to earth, are you going to tell me Lord God omnipotent, the creator of the universe, could speak a universe into existence out of his mouth, force the energy of God, is going to subject himself to becoming a baby? We wouldn't do it that way, would we not? We wouldn't do it that way. I've got a little piece that a friend sent me in a Christmas card two days ago that I'm going to read at the end of this. I'll touch on that. We probably wouldn't do it that way. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have a, a poor peasant boy away from home, not even born in the house. He's, he, he's born out in a stable. Right? And he is a refugee in Egypt for several years. 
and he spends the first 30 years of his life as an ordinary man living in an ordinary town doing ordinary things. What's that all about? Why is God so interested in identifying himself with us? Because you, you, it's tough to get around the idea that if God came to this earth as a human being, that God's got something very significant and very special about us. And could it be that the earth is the center of the moral universe? You think God would create a whole universe just to surround earth? It's an interesting idea. It's not in scripture. It didn't say it just like that. That's amazing. God you know, God's not limited. It didn't wear God out to create a universe. And God's got plenty of time to get it done. What is this thing that God is doing through Christmas? Now, the one thing that, one of the things that we, we have to deal with is the question of um, man's relationship to God in this. By the scripture will indicate that God wants to be connected to you and me, and that we are connected with God. It is God doing it in the first place. Let us create man in our own image. God could have made us any way he wanted to, right? But he made us the way he did. And if we're going to put God in the picture, we're going to have to blame it on God. We are the way we are. We're God's people. The scripture gives us in a a scattered in a, in a little bit the idea that God made the angels the way they were and allowed a, a, an angel, Lucifer, to uh, rebel, cast out of heaven, and according to the scripture, cast down on the earth. And God has put us here. He made Adam and Eve, put them in the garden. Everything's supposed to be lovely. And Adam and Eve follow after Lucifer, and rebel. Now, whatever that flaw is, as one author called the cussedness, the basic cussedness of man, of mankind, whatever it is, uh, can, we, can we blame the manufacturer? Do uh, you think God got super-duper surprised by Adam and Eve? Because we have scripture, which we read two weeks ago. Jesus Christ, a lamb slain from the creation of the world. So I'm going to believe that whatever it is that's going on with us being the way we are, having the difficulties we are, is inside the grand scheme, the big picture, the plan of God. And that God is God, and God knows where he's going, he knows what he's doing. Just because you and I are having trouble with it is not putting any heat on God. God knows who he is, where he's going, and what he's doing. What he's doing with us. How he regards us. Where we're going to go with it. And I want to spend the rest of this, this time looking at three passages of scripture. I'm just sharing with you Paul Beecham's feeling about this. When I start looking and what I'm going to believe, why and how I'm going to believe it. Let me share with you. One is in Hebrews, one is in 1 Corinthians, and the other is in Ephesians. 
and I'm going to read a good bit because we need to hear what the scripture says more than you need to hear what I say. This is, a, this is Hebrews second chapter and he has talked about us, mankind, and he uses the word son of man, which is a reference to Christ. And putting everything under him, God left nothing that was not subject to him. Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to him. Thank God knows what the current circumstances are. Whatever it is that God is doing in the Advent and in his Messiah, we don't see the finished version of it. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So when you want to get in this idea of the Messiah in Advent, we've got to determine what it is that's so significant about Jesus. That's who we see right now. We're in the time since he came. We're in the time before he comes back and concludes history. We're in the church age. And we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And we understand the scriptures. There is this whole thing about sin and death. The spiritual death that passed on all humankind by disobedience. And we understand Christ to be the cure. Let's keep reading. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, back to make sure we know who God is, should make the author or perfecter in one place, or the originator of their salvation, yours and mine, because what is being introduced here right away is that by his very nature, God is a saving and loving God, <clears throat> and he's trying to do something for us. It's for our behalf. To make the, the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. But the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Okay? God's claiming us as his. He's claiming us as his children. He's owning us. If he wanted to get rid of us, he could have, right? I mean, he could have wiped us all out. We know the stories in Genesis of God talking about his dissatisfaction in what had happened. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. So here we have then in Hebrews a review of this suffering servant idea of, of the Christ. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it's not the angels he helps. This is, Christ didn't come here for the angels' benefit, but for Abraham's descendants, us. For this reason, he had, had to be made like his brothers in every way. Now, there's a scriptural injunction. Jesus is really, sure enough, a man. He's born from a woman. You don't get anything born from a woman except human beings. We had the problems with the Gnostics after Christ had gone back to heaven and the scriptures 
are being written because the Gnostics who came along said, yeah, 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 I know all that stuff, but actually he wasn't really a man. He just looked like a man. He wasn't really a man. So the doubt about who Christ was, that's, that's old. Plenty of the, the Jewish leaders of his day, a lot of argument between Jesus and them about who he was. They said, we know who you are. You're a Samaritan. What they meant by that, we also know that your mother got pregnant before you were, she was married to her husband. It had that implication. You know, who do you think you are? And here we've got this idea that Christ is being made a man for some purposes that God has. Made like his brothers in every way. And he lets him live 30 years. He's not a local hero. He's not a miracle worker on the sly. He's a man. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. So God is going to identify with us so strongly that he's going to come to us. He's going to be one of us. He's going to really be one of us. Stumps his toe, it hurts. He's a, a real man. And he becomes then the only man that's ever lived a perfect and sinless life. And he becomes, by his living his life, he becomes qualified, if you will, with the Father to be one that can answer for you and me. <clears throat> and we know that you go, if we start reading in Romans, we come up with Paul talking about this kind of righteousness that is given to us. It's not us. It's nothing we did. It's a gift. What? Who, from whom? From the one who is righteous. So I think in Hebrews, this, this scripture gives us the foundation of who Christ is. Really, sure enough, a man. Really, sure enough, God. Never been anybody like him before or since. Where is he now? Well, of course, there are plenty of people who don't dig the idea of a, of a death and resurrection of Christ. The Jewish politicians of his day said, look, uh, what we're going to say is they came and stole him away. And plenty of people who love to talk about Jesus the prophet, well, they don't have anything to do with this Jesus that was dying and resurrected and then ascended into heaven. Come on, come on. You know. They think we're getting out in myth mythology land. Let me read to you what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And his, this first little paragraph is really kind of the forerunner of the Apostles' Creed. Listen to it. For, I re, for what I received, he says to them, I passed on to you as of first importance. Number one thing, listen up, that Christ died for our sins <coughs> according to the Scriptures. He met the criteria. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day, according to the scripture. And that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers, at the same time, most of whom are still living. You don't believe what I'm saying? Go ask one of them. They were there, they saw it. 
most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, his brother, who was not a believer before the resurrection. And then to all the apostles, and then Paul always in a very humble way, and then last to me as one abnormally born. And we know that his reference there is as though, as though he was an abnormal fetus who should have been discarded. Paul, Paul sees himself because of his persecution of the church. So then he says this in the same chapter. But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, now we're going on with the story of no longer a baby, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? So this is another point where Christianity, what we believe about Christianity hangs in the balance. One thing to have a spectacular thing coming if you want to buy in on God becoming a man. But a horse of a different color when you get on to the death and resurrection and ascension. And Paul's going to take it straight on. If it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, listen how many times he's going to say the same thing. Then not even Christ has been raised. He's going to argue the other side. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we're found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Those who've fallen asleep in Christ are lost, for if in this life only we have hope, we are to be pitied more than all men. Paul doesn't sidestep that issue about what we believe, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, for since death came by a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. The first Adam and the second Adam, Paul calls him. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. So that's our claim as Christians. That this God-man, this Messiah, has accomplished for us the restoration of who we ought to be in relationship with God. And who we should be. And I'm going to skip a little bit because we're going to run out of time. I can't believe that. Now, let me read to you some out of Ephesians. Paul says that's what he's done. Listen to the tense of the words in Ephesians as to what is supposed, what kind of condition it says you and I are already in when yet we're still here as sinners. It's still what Martin Luther called, you and I are what Martin Luther called sinners yet saints. Which is a strange sort of thing to say, isn't it? And here's what Paul says in Ephesians as he talks about it. That uh, we are blessed in the heavenly realms with every special blessing in Christ. For he, God, chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation. Back again, God knows what he's doing. The salvation that you and I claim to have in Christ. God's idea from before the creation of the universe. 
He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Uh, you ain't looking at a holy man. You ain't looking at a man that's blameless in terms of who I am, right? So if I'm holy and blameless, how's that going to be? In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons and, and daughters through Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace. Hey, God's doing all this stuff because that's the way He wants to do it. And it's got a glorious effect of the five solas of the um, Protestant Reformation, the last one, everything for the glory of God. In accordance with the riches of God's love, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us all with wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. That is, God has brought to light the gospel. The fact that we can be reconciled back to God through Christ. To bring all... Now, here's where he's going with it. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. We don't see that all happening. We're in the church age. Some of what Paul is talking about, purposed by God, done in Christ, we don't see it happening in time and space yet. We believe Christ to be in heaven and that there's more to come. And then, of course, I love these little verses which I'll throw in. And you also are included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you're marked in him with the seal, the Holy Spirit. Is that not wonderful? A sinner like me, marked with a, a stamp, a guarantee, a seal by God, and He gives me His Spirit to live in me and guarantees me eternal salvation to good to be true. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, and again, to the praise of his glory. God knows what he's doing, friends. No matter what is going on in this world, and in the, in the politics of these days, and in the, the terrible mess the world has really always been in, God is not derailed. God knows what he's doing. His purposes are being accomplished. And then Paul goes on in Ephesians first chapter. I pray also that the, how you like this, eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And it takes an enlightenment. In Corinthians he says that those that don't believe have their eyes darkened. That's why they can't believe. They can't see it, he says. He says here that the eyes of our heart will be enlightened, that we may know the hope to which he's called us. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for those that believe, it's like the same power that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. And where is Christ? And seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. That's where he is now far above all rule and authority 
power, and dominion. He's not going to leave anything out. And every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come, an age that we don't see yet. We're going to have to decide whether we believe this is true. And there is an age coming in which it will all be consummated. God placed all things under his feet, his Messiah, Christ. And appointed him the head of everything for the church, us, which is his body, us, the fullness of him who full, listen, what is the of Christ? The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Can't leave any escape room. This Messiah is God. He is in control. There is no wiggle room past him. I'll skip. We're, we're, I'm running out of time. And go all the way over in the second chapter of Ephesians, for it's by grace you've been saved. Grace. Not deserved. Goodness gracious, no, not me. I've been the last guy in line. The grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, of yourselves. I can't say, well, at least I was willing to believe. Uh Uh-uh. He saves us while we're dead, not after we believed. We believed because the grace allowed us to believe. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, nobody can boast. We're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's the story, friends. That's the story. This is a story of what God is doing and has done on our behalf. And then I was looking for a way to end, and a good friend from... 50 years ago, sends me this, and I'll read it to you, and it'll be our prayer, and it'll be the doxology. It's entitled, Why Did He Come? Did He come so His birth would be announced by angels? Or so wise men would see the miracles of a guiding star, and come and bring Him precious gifts so valuable and exquisite fit for a king? Or the shepherds would bow down and worship Him? If worship He desired, have been born in a palace and all would have been summoned to come and worship his royalty with many gifts that have been sent from all over the world to acknowledge his kingship the masses would have made pilgrimages to separate us to celebrate his birth and his deity he had his royalty his power and authority in the kingdom of heaven worshiped by angels and did his bidding He had it all, and we had nothing. The earth had reached a place of little hope and even indifference, weary and made, not him. Because man had lost his way, his walk in the cool evening, about Adam walking through the garden, walk with God, had been interrupted by sin. Because of broken hearts and lives, broken homes, families, broken bodies, broken marriages, broken minds, hopelessness, and broken spirits. He saw the needs of man in the throes of sin's bondage. Held captive by a grip they could not unloose, he saw the desire and futile efforts to find their way back to God. More prophets, more laws, more religions could not restore what was broken. 
Man's relationship to his God, his creator, was what was broken. Why is the baby? Why is the baby? And not just a man who just appeared. Because heaven's pure light desired to come as we came. Grow up as we grew up. Know every joy, every disappointment, every pain, every responsibility, every rejection. He experienced life through man's eyes, but gave life and hope through his deity. He became man to restore man to God. He became man to restore man to God. God the Father and to restore hope that was lost. Why did he come? So love's pure light would light the way for us, and we in turn would light the way for others. So we might be gathered in the unity of the Spirit in our different locations as part of the body of Christ, rejoicing that he came to bring us the light of salvation. And this was, the, was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through it. That's 1 John 4. And now, may the joy of his presence in you bring great joy and peace to you and your family. Merry Christmas. Amen. Can you believe how blessed we are to have had all these good lessons in the last few weeks? It's just been outstanding. As we get ready to go today, join with me in our Bible verse, and let's do the King James Version. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 16. Isn't that about the first you ever learned? Merry Christmas. Have fun. And let's worship.